You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. We are just shooting from the hip straight up this whole episode. I'm not editing anything from here on out. This is the Q&A episode, and we got a lot to get to. Uh, I'm not going to be able to answer all of the questions, but I am going to try my hardest to answer a lot of them. Um, there are <laughs> there are a handful of like boxers or briefs question type questions that I'll probably skip over. But uh, I used to be a boxer guy, but now I'm a brief guy. So we answered that one. So thanks, Kenneth Rogers, for taking time to ask that question. But um, so this is a straight Q&A. Uh, you guys have asked the questions. I'm going to give my opinions. Uh, don't crucify me for my opinions, right? We're not. This isn't what we're trying to accomplish here. But uh, to everybody who took the time out to ask a question, man, really appreciate it. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, let's see here. We're just going to go into a really quick commercial uh, right here. We got three brands I want to talk about, and we're going to do it real quick. Um, wasparchery.com please go and check out all of their broadheads majority of them are american made they're made from some of the best material so that means when that broadhead hits the animal you know it's designed to do a shit ton of damage so wasparchery.com or yeah, wasparchery.com, excuse me. I'm a huge fan of the Boss 4-Blade and the, what else, the Boss 4-Blade and probably the broadhead that I've killed the most deer with, and that's the jackhammer uh, from Wasp. So take take a look at that. And if you want to, we've got a discount code for Wasp, 20% off, and it's 9fingers2021. That's the number 9, followed by the word fingers2021. Next one, Vortex Optics. They're our title sponsor here on the podcast. Uh, love working with this company, right? Not only do they make badass optics, spotting scopes, range finders, binoculars, rifle scopes, red dots, you name it. They, they have an optic for the outdoorsman. But 
they are giving back in major ways, not only to educating their, uh, their end users, right. But at the same time, giving back to conservation efforts and hunting efforts and putting out lots of information, lots of educational educational information where they're giving back to the community. And it's very important to me to work with brands like Vortex that are giving back because uh, there's a lot of brands within this industry that just take and they don't do much to give back. Uh, and Vortex definitely is giving back. So vortexoptics.com, please go out and uh, support this brand, man. They're doing amazing things and they have amazing products. So I know you'll enjoy. Plus they have the VIP warranty where if you break it, you send it back to them and they fix it and they send it back to you for free. So uh, take that into consideration. Uh, lastly, real quick is hunt stand hunt stand is uh, an app you put on your phone and it's a digital mapping where you can uh, drop pins. You, you can uh, see property lines and property borders, you know, where public's at, you know, where private's at, you know, landowner names, you know, uh, acreage size, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's absolutely perfect for any type of hunter, whether you own your own property or whether you hunt public, this, this app allows you to, d uh, put data on this app, whether it's trail cam pictures, whether it's, uh, placing a, um, uh, like uh, an indicator where a scrape is or a rub is or where your tree stands at. And all these data points mean information that you can use to adjust, to move, to uh, maybe say, okay, the food plot didn't work here this year. I want to move the food plot over here. It allows you to do so many things. So I'll, here's what I'll say. Go to huntstand.com and check out all of the functionality that is provided with this app, man. And, I, and as the more that I use it, the more I enjoy using it. And uh, yeah, so huntstand.com, take a, take a look. It's uh, absolutely amazing. It's very affordable and it's probably the number one downloaded uh, hunting app uh, that there currently is. So there's the commercials. Thanks for taking a listen on that. Let me get my water real quick. <clears throat> And we have a shit ton of questions today. And uh, I don't know like how long this is going to last, but I'm going to go as long as, uh, as long as I possibly can on this, which depending on how my kids are, I mean, it's, I'm recording this at 914 at night and my kids haven't gone to bed yet. So that means that they're probably going to come up here at some point, but here we go. All right. And we have, all I have is like Instagram and Facebook, right? So that's where I ask the question and that's where I have the, uh, the, the questions at. So I'm going to go back and forth. Some of the questions that I have don't necessarily have the, the person's name. They just have their, uh, Instagram. So if I say Donald underscore D I I I, that's, uh, that's, it's not your, I don't know your name. I'm just saying that's uh, what it is. So uh, first question is from Donald underscore D underscore I, I, I thousand dollars to get you in the woods from scratch. What do you buy? What's most important? Okay. So this is a, a gear question. And so basically I have a thousand dollars to spend in the, uh, to, from scratch, no camo, no, uh, no clothing, no boots, no bow, no arrows. Um, so what I'm going to do probably is I'm going to split it in half. 
and I'm going to say boots, clothing, gear is $500, and the other $500 is going to go to arrows, uh, bow, broadheads, sight rest. Okay, so that's how I'm going to break this down. And so most importantly, in my opinion, are my feet. So I'm buying uh, a, a decent pair of socks. I'm buying uh, a, a pair of hiking boots that I can use all winter long and all summer long, right? And as far as my feet are concerned, I'm also spending the money on boot covers. I'm a huge fan of these Arctic Shield boot covers, and you can put those on over top of your feet and your feet will stay nice and crisp. I'm going with a, uh, a merino wool base layer, something fairly light, um, both bottoms and tops. Uh, so a, a decent, uh, I guess some merino wool for the winter months. I'll probably put on a pair of long johns. They don't necessarily have to be merino, but, um, uh, you can go to Walmart or you can go to you know, uh, some Bass Pro Shop and find a really cheap pair of uh, thicker type long johns or uh, a thicker upper, oh, like, a, a, I guess you want to call it an insulation layer. Uh, and then after that, man, I'm, I'm rocking dicky brown pants. I'm rocking some kind of uh, brown hooded sweatshirt, real thick. Um, so you have your merino base layer, you have your insulation layer, and then you have like um, this year I had an $85. It was $85, so it's kind of you know up there. That's a big chunk of that $500 budget. But um, you don't need to have that necessarily be merino. Uh, or merino, the one I'm using is merino, but uh, a heavy you know, uh, a heavy coat or gray coat, maybe even a Carhartt type of coat. And you mix, you, that's going to get you set. That's going to get you in the woods. It's going to get you hunting. Now on the other side of things with $500, I can buy uh, a decent set of arrows. I can uh, buy broadheads. I can buy a sight. I can buy a rest. And then I can go on to, uh, on Craigslist or Archery Talk, and I can buy a used bow or look for them on like some kind of garage sale, like Facebook Marketplace. I don't know if Facebook Marketplace allows you to do the uh, to, to sell archery equipment, but it's out there. And you can definitely, there is, so, I mean, just listen to the Hunting Gear podcast. There is so much stuff out there that you don't need to have the thousand dollar jacket you know or, or, or pair of bibs or the five hundred dollar insulation layer or whatever you don't need it um does the more money you like do, do i feel that price reflects quality in certain circumstances yes i do but with that said you definitely don't need it uh, you might just have to be a little tough and, and and you know deal with some of the heat deal with some of the uh pressure uh, deal with some of the the coldness the wind but for the most part, the clothes, you don't need all the fancy stuff. And then at the same time, uh, what's the, with the arrow, man, you get, people are selling their, their equipment, like a, a seven-year-old bow, let's just say, you could probably buy a seven-year-old bow for 200 bucks. You could buy a rest for 50 bucks. You could buy a sight for 50 bucks. Um, you could buy arrows for 50 bucks. Uh, and you can buy broadheads for 
50 bucks or whatever. And then after that, it just becomes practice and practice and practice and practice and practice with that equipment. And the next thing you know, you're deadly at 20, you know, 20 to 40 yards. And for whitetails, that's all you need. So, um, yes, there, there's that question. So thank you, uh, Donald for doing that. Okay. So the next question is from Brent W. Cox. Um, how low is too low in a tree? Use three sticks last season, but always felt low. So when I do my running guns, I, I take four sticks with me, but I don't always use four sticks. Um, I've noticed that there uh, are certain places where you want to get high as possible. And then there's certain places where you want that back cover and you don't want to be skylined uh, per se. So uh, it is, it's one of those things where I don't necessarily know if there's a right or wrong answer for, uh, going low or going high. Uh, I just kind of go with wherever, whatever the terrain dictates. If I'm in kind of a pinch point or, um, or someplace that's wide, a terrain feature that has less cover or is more wide open or, God forbid I, I'm sitting on a uh, I'm sitting on a field edge, then I'll probably get high. But if I'm in some thick, nasty bedding area or staging area, then I don't need to get too high because the higher you get in a tree with the more more cover, that just means more branches you have to trim out or less pockets to to try to shoot through. So it's uh, for me, it is a play it by ear. But I've killed deer at 20 feet. Uh, and I've 20, like 20, over 20 feet and I've killed deer at 12 feet, maybe even 10 feet with, uh, uh, I, I climbed into a, a V of a tree and then I put two sticks up and then I had my, uh, stand and I shot a deer that way as well. So there's that. Um, okay. Do you think relying on trail camera picks makes you miss the big picture of deer movement. Uh, big Country Joe is asking that question from Instagram. Yes. Um, people who focus 100% on trail camera data uh, are, are probably missing the picture, like missing the big picture. And, and I learned that from firsthand experience. I've learned that I've had, I've had trail cameras out. And I've had, uh, and basically this uh, handful of years ago, I've been starting to put trail cameras in trees, pointing, pointing down on my trail cameras because I had uh, people trying to steal my trail cameras. So what I noticed was there was a 145 class eight pointer, this really good four year old eight pointer. Um, and I had it over top of a, a mineral site all summer. And this deer did not hit the mineral site one time. And it wasn't until the season started where I tore down that trail or, uh, it was after the rut actually. And I noticed this buck going behind that other trail camera on a trail every single time it came by. It didn't hit that mineral site one time. So that right there shows the importance of scouting. It shows the importance of being observant in in the woods while you know while you're watching deer movement and you definitely you definitely can't rely on uh 
on trail cameras 100%. You got to you got to put the boots on the ground and and do things like that and um for me, how I use trail trail cameras is I pretty much I'm checking trail cameras on fence crossing, pinch points, major scrapes and uh and then I'll check them if the buck that I that is there uh whether he's there or not. Um I give every area of a farm uh an equal opportunity, right? So if there's a shooter that shows up on camera, it, all it does is cut out like steps, a, B and C. I know what I need to do because that buck's there. Now, if a shooter buck isn't on camera, I got to go through the process, right? I got to hunt my, my rut funnels. I got to hunt my staging areas, my bedding areas and cycle through them until I locate something I want to move in on, or I get a trail camera pick of one of the deer that I'm chasing. So that's kind of how I, uh, I approach it. I approach it. So, you know, deer aren't walking down the same trail every single day. I mean, they might, but at the same time they could skirt bucks use terrain different than doe groups do in some instances. And, uh, yeah, so good question. And there's my answer. Um, here's something that here's a great well, let's see, you know, I just did one from him. Uh, okay. What terrain features did you focus on when you public land hunted in Michigan? Okay. So I, this is a short answer. I focused on draws and spur ridges that had some sort of edge on them that led up into an ag field. Or, um, yeah, so an egg, an, an egg field, because I was there during that October, the mid-October time frame, mid to late October time frame, and I knew that hunting field edges, obviously, isn't going to do me anything. I knew that uh, running and gunning into what I assumed were bedding areas wasn't going to do me any good, because I didn't have the time to really, uh, you know put into that because I was only there for like four days four maybe five days total right so what I did was I went and ended up uh, uh, running into the 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 public looking at uh, topographic maps finding the most aggressive terrain feature and, and usually what would happen is I'd run into uh, run into a rub line or rubs or scrapes or something like that. I'd find that edge where it, the thick stuff met the opened up stuff. Usually there's sign there. I guess you would call that a staging area. So I'm looking for those, those three kind of things, the edge, a staging area, and uh, a decent terrain feature that's going to lead them to uh, an egg field, which is usually like a low spot in the terrain. Um, sometimes they're aggressive, sometimes they're subtle. And, uh, yeah. So who, who asked that question? Uh, do do Cody Vincent 13. So, yep, there you go. Cody Vincent. Um, and this is kind of a, this is kind of a, a unique question by Dern, Dernan, Dernan Bonds. How much attention do you pay to rub lines? Well, research shows that rub lines or any type of sign most of the time, uh, 
more than more more sign is made during night than is made during the day, right? So so nocturnal movement. But what it means is if you can find a, a rub line, let's say, it means that it's some kind of travel door, tra- travel corridor at some point. However, a rub is past data. It's not anything that I'm really gonna make a a big I don't know. I'm not going to walk through the timber and I'm going to see this rub and it's going to overwhelmingly make me want to go hunt by it. Um, for, for me, it's terrain, right? And it's terrain, it's edge, it's thick cover. Those are, those are what kind of, uh, those are what kind of drive, drive me. So rub lines, I guess. And, and unless it's a gigantic rub, like the size of my leg, I'm not going to pay too much attention to it because I've seen little deer rub medium trees raw, like spikes or, uh, you know, a 120 class. And I know that, that that's irrelevant, the age, the age of it. But, you know, it's, it's just something that I, I don't put a lot of uh, uh, energy into. All right. Um, with with the drought throughout the Midwest, if it continues, are water sources going to be okay? Yeah. So, K Martinez dot five two six three two. So here in Iowa, or in my part of Iowa, we've had some decent rain. So I'm going to say we're not in as bad of drought conditions as other places throughout the um, Iowa or the Midwest. But yes, definitely early season. Um, I think, uh, water is one of those things where a deer will get up out of its bed. And the first thing they're going to do is try to find something to drink before they go and feed. And from my experience, it's not necessarily a giant pond. It is a, a weep in the side of a hill, or it's a, a dried Creek bed that just has a little bit of water in it. And so it's not, it's not when, like, I think a lot of people think of a water source as a pond or a major creek or something like that, which, yeah, they get their, they get their water from that, but they also get their water from the food that they eat, the plants they, that they eat. Um, and they also can, can drink just little amounts of water. I actually, um, if you've ever seen it, some of these, trees they have one base but they're split uh, maybe half of it falls half of it falls down and it creates a little a flat part and over the time it gets uh rotted out and it creates kind of a hole and then rainwater will collect in it i've seen deer drink out of that so yes i think water is always important but you don't focus too much on the major water sources around uh, like rivers and ponds and, and things like that. I think that they can get their water um, from other places that just have a little bit of water. And that's all they really need is, uh, you know, just a little bit of water. They don't need to drink a pond full of water. So uh, there's that. Let's see here. Um, okay. Let's see here. Mornings or evening success. I'm, I'm thinking about the deer that I have hanging on my wall. Let me get a drink of water real quick. 
And I'm, I'm thinking of the water or the deer that I have on my wall and then I've killed. Let's see. Afternoon, afternoon, uh, af- afternoon, morning, afternoon. So I would say a majority of my my success, I guess you would say, would come from uh, would come from afternoon hunts. But I think that's just I don't know what the what the it's just random, right? It just so happens that those deer came by on where I was sitting on afternoon hunts. I don't think that I'm making decisions like I'm I'm making decisions to hunt better spots during the afternoon because I'm I'm pretty aggressive and I go into good spots and I've had good encounters throughout the year, seen de- good deer movement on morning hunts. But I don't know. Uh, a lot of my first time in, best time in type hunts are afternoon hunts. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of setting a, a tree stand up in the dark. So what I typically do is I'll go into an area, I'll run and gun in in the afternoon, I'll set up, see what comes through. If nothing happens, I'll give that stand one one more shot in the morn in that morning. So I'll leave my stand up, I'll go back out on a good access route and then I'll come back to that stand and if nothing comes through in the morning, typically I leave and go somewhere else. And that's I feel like that's kind of busted me in in the past. I feel like I've been too mobile at times where I'm not giving an area enough time. I'm like hitting it real quick saying, "Yeah, there's nothing here." and then I split. Um and I think it should that should definitely be a learning opportunity for me. I feel like I definitely need to uh, put a little bit more time into specific areas um, more than just a an, an afternoon or in a morning hunt. I think I might have to you know give it a a three day. There's there's some guys that I've talked to who are on three day cycles. Like they'll hunt a you know, they'll hunt a stand for maybe three days, see what comes through if they can't find anything. And then they'll move and hunt a new spot three days in a row. And they seem to think that these deer, deer are on, I don't know why three is the magic number, but they talk about this three day cycle where, you know, they'll go, they'll come through an area, they'll leave and they'll circle back around and they just keep circling that. And it takes them three days to make this circle. So maybe it's four days, maybe it's two days, who knows? But, um, I, I just always try to put myself in the best possible position every hunt. And a lot of that depends on wind direction. A lot of it depends on, um, you know, where the crops are, are the crops in, are the crops out, uh, what the wind direction is, um, what I've, what kind of historical data I have through trail cameras and, uh, um, encounters while in the stand. So, yeah. So I guess I don't necessarily have a, and I don't have a favorite, but I, I, I love hunting mornings. I think I used to be an afternoon guy, but mornings, I feel like you can get in there early, get, put, put yourself in a position where the wind really isn't affecting deer movement. And then you just kind of wake up to this fresh, 
like this fresh movement. And I like to get in somewhat early. So where the timber settles down a little bit, because there there's times where I feel that deer are coming through an area closer to daylight. Like, you know, that, 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 last 45 minutes of dark so i i really like to get into my tree stand an hour some of them an hour or so before and that way they're still in their food sources or milling around before they're making their trek back to their bedding areas so um i like hunting i like hunting mornings probably a little more i like uh being aggressive on morning hunts but i've just circumstance i guess has shown me or has led me towards more afternoon harvests and i don't know what i really don't know what that means so good question and that was from m hag m h a g u e so huge uh it looks like you you kind of have the same scenario all right uh <laughs> there are some there are some dandies uh, how to prevent chafing on inner leg after miles and miles of hunting in a week. Um, you need, you just need a good pair of boxer briefs, man. And then if for some, like, that's what I wear boxer briefs. And, uh, if it starts to chafe a little bit, take a, take some Vaseline, rub it on. You're good to go. I guess that's what I do. So, um, Given the choice, would you hunt? This is from Ethan Kuntz. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, given the choice, would you rather hunt public for the challenge or private for the convenience? Well, I'll t- I'm going to tell you this right now. The farms that I have access to, um, no, they're not exactly the same, but there is hunting pressure on, on these farms. So I am making the same decisions and this in the same thought process is going through my head whether it is private or public and i mean don't get me wrong i love a good challenge but i also like opportunities and what i mean by that is i like having the most possible opportunities that a guy can have within a a single season and i am you know i'm a father of 3 I like to put my work in on knocking on doors and gaining access to permission to get permission on, on private ground because there are parts of Iowa where there's not a lot of public. I mean, we have less than 2% public lands here in Iowa. The rest is private. And uh, as we all know, uh, Iowa is a hotbed for hunting meaning there's a lot of leases there's a lot of uh, land that gets bought and sold all the time and uh, just for recreational use like hunting and it becomes less and less and less available and that means more and more people are hunting public ground and so one way to be successful in my eyes is to put my time and energy into knocking on doors and accessing public ground i'm still scouting you know i'm still scouting and it's not like i'm taking any shortcuts or i'm not hunting as hard on certain spots now there are public pieces that i hunt that are really good and i've had encounters with some decent deer through throughout the years but um i mean 
I have access to this public that I've had access to for several years. I like a new challenge and that's why I go out of state to hunt. But some of these, uh, some of these places, it's just like, I'll put it to you this way. And I don't know what this, if this is going to make me sound like a douche or not, but I can bust my ass on private and potentially have a shot at a 170 or a four-year-old or older, if not older. I can go to public and I can bust my ass and I can walk into other people. I can get walked in on. I can uh, bust my ass and have a, um, uh, a shot opportunity at a three-year-old or a two-year-old, you know, maybe even a four-year-old in, in some places that I've hunt, four-year-old. But I don't know. I guess I'm just going to go that other route because it's, it's available to me. It's like, do you want a filet mignon? If, if they're both right in front of you, do you want a filet mignon or do you want a microwavable cheeseburger from a gas station? Like I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not trying to talk shit on public because I mean, I, I take advantage of public ground, but I have access to both. And a majority of my time is spent here in Iowa anyway, uh, on, on public ground or on private ground. Now, when I go hunt, when I go hunt other States, South Dakota, was damn near a hundred well ninety percent of it was on public when I went to Michigan public uh, when I go to Colorado public uh, this year there's a chance I'm going to Nebraska and Missouri that's going to be public and that those are new challenges for me but as a resident here in Iowa I have uh, the availability to hunt private ground so I hunt private ground let's see here um, next question. Pros and cons of lightweight and heavyweight arrow set setups. And this is from TC Boyer. Um, you know, I used to fall for the, you got to have a light arrow and you got to shoot it fast and it's got to be lightning quick and all that shit. But I'll tell you this right now, the second I bumped up my arrow weight, my accuracy, my accuracy became better and my bow had less hand shock in it uh easier basically easier to shoot now i found nothing honestly but positive things about heavier arrow setups the the lack of you know the arrow isn't flexing as much it's it's a stiff arrow it allows you to be more accurate and then just the penetrating power of a heavy arrow at you know i mean other than I'm trying to think of when the last time I didn't get a pass through on my deer was once I bumped up to uh, over a 500 grain arrow. I mean, it's destructive, especially, especially for whitetail hunters and tree stands where the average shot is like 18 to 20 yards. You're, you're destroying an animal with a heavy arrow like that. And even on a marginal shot, the chances of going through a shoulder or causing a lot more damage on a marginal shot is just going to be reduced with a heavier with a heavier arrow and a real good broadhead on on the front. So, you know, you can drive a and and with bows these days, right? I shoot 30 
I'm, I'm shooting like a 29 and a half inch draw, 70 pounds with a 500 grain arrow. I'm damn near throwing a semi at these deer. And man, I've knocked deer off their feet. I hit a, I hit a doe once. It was in 2017, I think, where she was quartering away, hit her, and the arrow went into her opposite side uh, uh, shoulder socket, and it lifted her off the ground, and she knocked, she fell over, and she just died right there. It was gnarly, and uh, I mean, I've hit, I've hit deer um, in some marginal shots where the ex, my, my 2018 buck is a perfect example of that. Um, I put on a shitty shot on a deer hit back ham, that arrow weight with that, uh, fixed blade broadhead or yeah, fixed blade with over 500 grains of, uh, arrow weight went all the way through that animal to the armpit of the other side. I got guts, I got diaphragm, I got liver, and I got a little bit of lung, on the on the low side and it's honestly no looking back for me uh and not only does is accuracy important i know a lot of guys think that this arrow weight thing is um is going overboard but i just say why not like why not shoot a heavy arrow if if you have the means to do so and i like to i like to do that uh let's see here um We've talked about morning hunts. Is summer scouting overrated? That's a great question because that's something that I'm. I always debate. Uh, who who asked that? M twenty six. Greg is nope. Who did nope? We're uh, summer scouting. Uh, Cash outdoors three is summer scouting overrated? I don't think any scouting is is overrated. I think scouting period is underrated. The more time that you can spend in the woods, the more time you can look at terrain features. You can look at uh, edge. You can look at vegetation. You can look at crop rotation. You can find old sign. You can bump deer out of their beds potentially and say, hey, they feel comfortable here now. They might be comfortable here in September or October. So when it comes to scouting, scouting is very valuable. And I, I always tell people, man, you got to get out and scout. You got to get out and scout, scout more, scout more, scout more. The more time you spend in the woods, the more you're going to be able to understand terrain, understand wind. And this is something, uh, we have another question that's going to come up here in a little bit. Let me see if I can't find it real quick. It might be a perfect place to just add on, um, is being observant. A lot of people, I, I think when they scout, they're just looking for check boxes to, to fill. You got to check this box. I got to check this bedding area or check this staging area or check this funnel. When I like to stop and whether it's in March when I'm scouting and there's no vegetation or whether it's July and there's a ton of vegetation, I like to stop and see how wind moves through terrain features or over the landscape and see where these wind funnels are. And there's that. So let's see here. Next question. How have your hunting goals changed over your career? And that's by Wisco Lumber. W-I-S-C-O-L-U-M-B-E-R. So Wisco Lumber. I think that's it. Anyway, that's a great question. Man, when I first, in 2006, I, I'd been hunting before that, but in, in 
2006 is when I had my boom, like my cannonball into hardcore bow hunting. It's in that, in that next five years is where I learned an absolute large amount of information, uh, by trial and error and by failure about hunting period. Um, just how to use terrain. I, I can remember getting busted by so many deer those first years, but then having the wherewithal to take that failure and turn it into a move or an adjustment uh, and that led to success. And what I, and when I say success, I don't necessarily necessarily mean putting a deer on the ground. I mean, putting myself in the same position where that doe group, the next time I hunted that area, didn't bust me, didn't wind me. Um, they came through with natural deer movement and it's those type of small victories that really over the years, years have, have built. It's not even like a a foundation, right? I guess you could say it's the foundation, but I just, the learning to fail with uh, corrective actions after you fail is is of the utmost important. So, how have I changed as a hunter throughout the years? I think was that was that the question, or uh, how have your hunting goals changed over the career? So, my goal was always to go out and shoot the biggest, baddest buck on, and it still kind of is, right? But I don't put as much pressure on myself. I take more of a relaxed approach to it. Um, so it's the, the outcome is the same, but the process is different, right? I'm not running gun, wild, dick out type of hunting anymore. I'm more methodical in my approach, but I'm also really aggressive when it calls for aggressive moves. And... Um, being able to balance that. So I would say that I'm more balanced, um, between that, you know, that going through the process, boom, there's an opening attack type type thing. And everybody talks about that, but it's just going through and following through. Like, man, I don't know how many times I would sit on a field edge. I'd see a big buck come out of a thicket. And then I'd say to myself, Hey man, I'm going to come here the next night. And I'm going to try to rattle them in. And let's say that buck comes out the second night in a row out of that same thicket. How stupid was I for not making that move or figuring out a way to get where he came out of that thicket within bow range or finding a way to do that? Man, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it happens all the time. And, um, and, and I should say it happened all the time, but now I don't give that oppor- you know, I don't give that deer an opportunity to win again in that same exact scenario. If he wins again, it's because I my my, my plan wasn't perfect, right? Something happened to where he maybe looped out down another trail or the wind direction changed and I didn't account for that or the thermals were doing something or you know, something happened to where I I did not have the favor. You know, the, the, it wasn't stacked in my hands and you learn from that. So my approach these days, the goal is always the same, right? To kill a hitless buck, but 
Now it's just to have a little bit more fun. It is to um, have the approach, not worry about all the bullshit like the camo brands. I, I can I can remember back in the day when you know I was filming with another company and you had to have certain things and this and that. And you know people people now they send me gear and equipment to test out and try, and I just keep going back to what I like and going back to the things that I've worked and that you know I don't know. It's just everybody's different and i find myself just enjoying the process way more now than the end result and that's probably why i don't score many of my deer uh, it's probably why i enjoy doing what i'm doing and talking about it uh, i enjoy scouting and shed hunting just as much as actually hunting uh, so it's the process for me man so that's i, I hope that answered the question uh, here's an interesting question from David Mad Madrigal. David Madrigal, I'm going to call him. Hopefully that, I, I probably butchered that from Instagram. What are the three basic rules hunters can fall back on to find success? And he, he wrote me a long kind of question, but it was, here's the breakdown of it. Um, you know, a lot of people get caught up in a whole bunch of different things, whether it's, uh, the gear that they use or you know they they are listening to one person say one thing like uh, i don't know someone maybe even myself or someone like myself who has a podcast or a vlog or writes articles or they see on tv shows well you don't hunt like me i don't hunt like you so the only thing that i really try to accomplish especially in this podcast is to share principles that myself and other hunters share which allows me that could be uh used those principles used on your properties that you hunt and the three for me every time i get i I get frustrated or I find myself in a rut during the rut or, you know, during hunting, I always kind of fall back on these three, these three things. And I, I wrote them down because I wanted to give a good answer on this one for people to find success time. And this is no joke. The more time that you spend in the woods, scouting, shed hunting, running trail cameras, um, scouting for tree stand locations, scouting for deer sign, actually hunting. The more time you do all those things and educate yourself on the, the, the landscape that you have access to, the more success you'll have. Hands down, I believe that 100%. And you're going to fail throughout that time frame. But guess what? You're going to to um you're going to find success at some point and then it's going to click for you and you're going to go oh my god i can't believe i did that and then the next time you won't do that and the next time you might shoot a deer or you might fail in a different way but then you adjust at that point too but time coverage you know why are some of these uh, tv personalities uh killing gigantic bucks now yes they have these highly managed pieces of property but they're putting time into their property they're cutting down trees and making exquisite bedding areas they're they're planting primo food plots all this time and energy it is what they're doing 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year right 
Now, some of us can't do that, but if you're a public land hunter and you want to find success, you know, you know what you need to be doing. You need to be out there scouting. You need to be out there um, checking trees. You need to be potentially running trail cameras if you can. All these things. The more time you spend in the woods scouting, hunting, observing, the more you're, the more success you're going to have. I firmly believe that. The second one out of that is, so time is one, pace. The pace in which you which you do those things. Man, like I said earlier, I used to be that guy who was going bananas, just running and gunning and moving and going and going and going and going and going. And until I learned that I was I wasn't I wasn't thinking, and this is this kind of goes into what I've already said, but it's also part of the third one, is this pace was just too fast. And I don't mean it from a strategy standpoint, I meant it from I was skipping ahead to certain things and not thinking or observing the um, what all the other things that I had been encountering. Like I wasn't watching the leaves fall out of the tree and do something funky in a certain terrain feature or thermals. You know, I wasn't watching the the doe this this what this small buck did around a certain log. You know, it's just. And that's where this third one comes in, right? So we have time, we have pace, and then we have being observant, right? And just slowing down your pace, observing all of these things, and then quickening your pace when the time calls for it. And you've had the data and the information to support you picking that pace up in for like a a kill set or jumping into a, a bedding area that's real hot at the time or you get a trail camera picture four hours before you checked it of uh, a shooter buck then you go in hard right you pick up that pace and you go and then you come back out and you slow that pace down again and you observe to do to do boom go 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 boom boom and it just becomes fluid at that point and that's the stage that i think i'm in right now where i'll walk into the woods stand on my back or maybe even I'm heading to a, a stand that uh, I, I started off, start the process off by going to a stand that is there, that's already hung up. It's a historically good rut location. And then, you know, nothing really happens. All right, let's go to the timber or go back to the truck. Let's get a stand on the back. Let's go for a running gun. Here we are. Da-da, da-da. Okay, boom. I was off by 20 yards. I need to move my stand, drop it, go, get over there, set up, go observant that I, you know, and, and just go with the flow. And sometimes the flow is going to be fast. Sometimes the flow is going to be slow and methodical, but the whole time you, your eyes and ears and brain have to be open to make the right decision. Um, and you're not going to make the right decision every time because after 20 years plus of, of deer hunting, uh, I'm, I still make wrong decisions. I still get busted. I still, um, make mistakes, but I'm better now at at correcting those mistakes than I was a handful of years ago. So hopefully that answered, answered your question. Um, man, let me pull up Facebook. I've done a lot on Instagram. Let me pull up Facebook real quick and ask some of those questions. Um, 
Oh, I like this question from Bill Abel. Bill says, what are your favorite features to zero in on during the rut? Pinch points, downwind side of doe bedding, upper third of cruising ridges, crit crossings, etc. Let me get a drink of water. All right. <clears throat> this is where my process really kicks in because I pretty much cycle through everything like that. You know, we have a crit crossing there, which is a, a micro, I'll call that a very micro uh, strategy move where you're hunting one trail, one crit crossing, potentially a, um, a pinch point of sorts that's causing all the traffic to go through there. But the favorite features for me, um, number one by far is staging areas. Um, and, and a lot of people would probably say downwind to bedding, but I say staging areas for this fact in an afternoon hunt. And heck, it could even be a morning hunt if your access is great. So when you hunt one bedding area, you hunt one bedding area. And my experience shows that multiple doe groups, multiple bedding areas can come through one staging area. So you may see multiple doe groups come through this staging area over a period of time, you know, over the period of a morning or an afternoon. And what this does is it's not only funneling deer movement down into this staging area, it's funneling the number of deer down into this staging area so you could have you could possibly have and i'm using i'm using a scenario here that um and i think i think the principle here could be used anywhere whether you hunt big woods whether you hunt um it, let's just say it's not ag but it's a food source and there's it's an active food source maybe it's an oak tree maybe it's uh, a grass field maybe it's clover whatever um but you have multiple you, you have multiple doe groups all coming to a destination food source at some point, and I feel like a lot of the times they just stage somewhere before they hit that destination food source. And a lot of the times they'll come through, depending on the wind direction, the same staging area. So you have, you have deer bedding all over the timber, let's say, and as they're heading to this destination food source, they're coming through the same staging area because the wind is dictating that, right? So me, my, by far, my favorite uh, thing to hunt is, uh, is staging areas before a destination food source, probably on an afternoon or with great access. If I have good access to that staging area, I'm going to hunt it back. And it's just an, another type of concentrated deer movement before they redistribute out into the woods. Um, second would be, would be bedding areas, uh, for sure. I like these two places because if I have information that a big buck is going to be in like, uh, trail camera pictures of big bucks in a bedding area or in a, um, a staging area, I like to, those are, those are two places where I go when I'm going after, uh, a target deer or multiple target deer, right? Uh, first staging area, second downwind of, of any type of bedding, whether it's doe or potential buck or whatever. Um, in my opinion, uh, bedding is kind of bedding. You know, if it's good thick cover, 
uh, does will bed there, but also bucks will bed there too. So there's that. Um, the next thing, uh, you know, you've heard it all before, you know, downwind of bedding, trying to catch the cruising bucks, but those are, those are number one and number two. Now the third one pinch points and, uh, travel corridors, I'm going to say are, are tied for third and fourth because of this. I'm hunting those when I don't know if I have a target buck on camera or I haven't seen a target buck. I'm just basically hoping something comes through here. Uh, one of my target bucks comes through a pinch point or a staging area. And a lot of the times, uh, a staging area, and the reason I like, uh, I'm thinking of one staging area in particular, it has everything. It, it has multiple doe, bed, doe groups funnel through this staging area, but the staging area also has great edge and a predominant terrain feature that leads up to uh, a destination food source, right? So um, I'm going to point all of you who are still listening to this to the, uh, what's it called? Um, the Whiteboard Whitetails on the Sportsman's Nation uh, YouTube channel. I did a handful of these whiteboard type of tutorials where I talk about my specific tree stand lo locations. I have um, topographic line, topo lines all drawn, drawn out. I tell what the wind's doing. I tell what the, um, what the deer are doing, why I hunt this stand. I talk about spur ridges. But everything aside, you talk about edge and cover and ter like terrain features and how uh, deer movement is funneled into this specific area. And I'll tell you this, man, it is, it, I, I, I just, I've, I've found this groove, right. And my groove is in staging areas, I guess. Um, but if, if the staging area turns dead or I get busted, then I'm off to a pinch point or I'm off to a big travel corridor uh, or a combination of the two and just kind of observing or maybe an observation set where I can see everything in the timber. And then I'll see a, uh, a buck cruise by, drop down, go, you know, go to where he's going and uh, just kind of go through that process, through that cycle again. So that's a great question from Bill Abel. All right, so we got a couple more left here. Let's see. How many times throughout any season do you think you've lost your grunt tube? I can't find another to compare to my original Mad Buck Roar. Um, dude, I was pretty pissed. I, I've shared this story before. Drink of water time. I've shared this story before. I lost this grunt tube that I think I had for like 14 years and it, it was the best sounding it, the, the rope had broken off of it. So I was just carrying it around in my pockets. Um, it was rubber and plastic, but it sounded real. Like I could do things with that. I could get, I called it, I think I gave it the name Mr. Automatic because I would just have to do the one and the buck that I was grunting at would turn, look, and just, I had, I, I had a real, real good success. Uh, my batting average was pretty good for, uh, turning bucks around and coming back. Then I lost it. I was pissed. And, um, so I had to go to like a, a Gander mountain, I think it was. And I was opening up all of these, 
uh, I was opening up all of these different grunt tubes and blowing of them. Some high school kid came over to me. He's like, uh, I don't think you can do that. And I'm just like, dude, shut up and get out of here <laughs> because I am trying to find this, this realistic one. And, and then I ended up finding some, I don't know, like real tree or uh, bone collector one that sounded the most like it. It didn't sound just like it, but it sounded the most like it. So I've, I've in the past, this is no joke. In the past 20 years, I've had two grunt calls. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good on the grunt calls. Uh, let's see. Sometimes. Oh, okay. Sometimes you ask about a person's aha moment. What was yours? Man, that's a, that's a really good, that's a really good question. And I think when it comes to aha moments and hunting strategy, I've had several aha moments that have built up my confidence and have built up my, you know, all these things, like my, my repertoire as far as my decision-making is concerned. So I'm going to give you an example of, I guess, one aha moment that really stuck out to me. And it was back when I had a lot more time. I wasn't married, so I was in the woods a lot. And I'm watching this doe group funnel by. Funnel by me. They come out of this thick stuff where I had, you know, encounters with this giant buck I called Shipwreck a handful of years ago. This particular year, he was about 190 inches. And uh, he shows up. And he's coming down the same trail that he's coming down the same trail that all these does were had come down and they were just ahead of him. The wind was doing something, so he kind of walked up, put his nose in the air, and he literally was sent checking in every individual doe as they walked they walked by. So he had his head up, he was sniffing. See the other one kind of follow the, the lead doe. Nose up, sniffing real hard. Next one comes. Nose up, stiff, sniffing real hard. I think he did that with all three or four does. The does funneled by, and I'm just like, he's going to walk by at 18 yards. 18 yards. These does were walking by me, and I'm just like, game time. Here we go. I'm, I'm just waiting to draw back. He puts his head down, and he just walks the, the, the other direction. And that was an aha moment for me where these deer are so in tune with their surroundings and that, that buck was so mature, he, he knew that he wasn't going to waste his energy chasing deer, these does that weren't in heat. And he stuck to the cover. I was a little bit out of the cover. He stuck to the cover. He used his nose to basically save his life. These does funneled by me, and he took the long way around. Uh, but he stayed in the cover, and he he just, I sat there, and I was just in awe of how, how he used his senses to not go down that specific trail, right? He's like, I'm not going to chase these deer. There's nothing to chase. I'm just going to go back. I'm going to try to find another one. Or an, And he probably did that. And that's why this buck got to the age of 10, right? 
10 years old before he was shot by not making dumb decisions. So if you want to kill a buck like that, you have to think and act like they do and make decisions based off how they act. And that means you got to get into that cover. You got to find that edge. You got to do your scouting. You got to learn from your mistakes. You have to um, be observant. All these things kind of add up. But that was one particular moment where I was just like, damn, like that buck could have easily taken 10 more yards to go scent check these does and I would have had a shot, but he, instead he stayed back. He's probably at 35 yards and nothing. Um, so dude, and, and that's why these, these deer just, they, they have more patience than us. And that's why they survive. Like some of these deer survive as long as they do. Like once they pass this three-year-old time frame, they get to four, they become exponentially harder to kill. And you're talking about a five-year-old, harder, six-year-old, harder, seven-year-old, harder. Like at some point, a lot of these deer, they just turn into ghosts. I've had pictures of um, this one buck from four to nine, I think he was, uh, on one farm, nocturnal every single. Now, it doesn't mean he was nocturnal on other parts of the farm or on the neighboring farms, but on my farm, nocturnal every single time. I have two pictures of him in six years of trail camera pictures of him where he was in daylight. These deer are patient. And that was probably one of my biggest aha moments. And that's what kind of led me to get into the shit, so to speak, when, um, when I'm looking for these deer. Uh, Do you think deer can hear an ozonics unit from Brian Mayer? Uh, No, I don't. Um, I, I honestly don't. It sounds like a distant grain bin dryer for me, what I think when I think of it. And when I sit down and I necessarily can't hear it myself, I don't think these deer can hear it at 20 or 30 feet away. So it may sound like it because you're closer, but no. Um, what's one here? We'll just run through some quick ones here. Um, what are a couple products that maybe may come off as gimmicks but you actually use uh let's see here i guess ozonics some people think ozonics is a gimmick it is not i love using ozone um you know i've talked i talk about that a lot um for access dude nose jammer i've got away with murder with nose jammer great uh, an absolute great product for walking in and out of your timber uh let's see what's the other one i'm thinking and that's about it i, I don't use too much you know, too many more gimmicks. I don't think like runt, uh, grunt call or rattling antlers or anything like that or, or is gimmicks. Um, let's see here. Where else are we at? Um, I always, uh, do you, do you stop deer? You try to stop deer? Yes. Um, I try to wait for the deer to stop naturally if I can, but if I have to, I'll give her the quick bam drop them you know let the arrow go at, at that just get them holding still uh do, 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 do. i think that's it um there's there's so many more questions that i wish i could get to and i apologize if uh if i didn't get to your question but i really appreciate you guys listening to this thank you very much for uh sending the questions in thank you very much 
to absolutely everybody who takes time out of their day to download and listen to the Nine Finger Chronicles. Just remember the Nine Finger Kitchen episodes, man, on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. Go subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel. There's going to be a ton of information, ton of cool videos coming out of that camp um, over the next couple months. And uh, other than that, man, let's let's say thanks to Ozonics, Lone Wolf, Exodus, uh, Excalibur Crossbows, Wasp, Vortex, and Hunt Stand. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And lastly, uh, just live your life in a positive mood. I mean, try to be as positive as, as possible because when you're positive, those who are around you are more, more positive. And even when those people are negative, you stay positive. And that's going to help them come to this this positive level as well. Um, so send out those good vibes, man. Uh, good vibes in, good vibes out. Wear your safety harness. And we'll definitely talk to you next time. Hopefully this Q&A got you guys fired up for the upcoming season. Thank you.